Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. That's going to be our primary text this morning. And then we're going to go over to Luke 3 as well. So if you have a physical Bible and you want to mark both of those passages, uh, that would be helpful. Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3. Uh, We are roughly 18 years removed from last week's text. If you were were here, Michael talked about the uh, the visit of the Magi, the magicians, from other countries who read the stars in the sky and realized that the king of the Jews had come. The escape of Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus to Egypt for probably a period of two years. And then Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple. Uh, teaching and learning and challenging Mary and Joseph to be reminded who he was and why he was here. And then the Bible goes, an 18-year gap estimated to the moment in time that we're at now. Jesus would have been roughly the age of 30 when we rejoin our story in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. At the end of November, Matt Gilchrist, our missional impact minister, preached a message about this period of time, this 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament. And that's that gap. For 400 years, God did not speak a word through a prophet. He did not speak in any uh, form that he had spoken previous. For 400 years, there was silence. That silence was broken by three very unusual people at the beginning of the New Testament. It would be spoken by Mary, the mother of Jesus. When she prophesied the the Magnificat, that wonderful passage where she projects what her son, the promised son to her, would do. And then, Zechariah, the father of John, who we speak of today, he prophesied about what his son would do and what the Messiah would do. And then, two weeks ago, we talked about Simeon, who was a priest in the temple, who prophesied. For 400 years... There's nothing, and then in this span of roughly nine months, there are these three prophetic messages that arrive, and God begins to speak, and we're introduced to John. In fact, the last words of your Old Testament are quite fascinating. 
The last words we heard before Mary prophesied the Magnificat is found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Look it with, with me. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Malachi prophesies that one like Elijah will come and he will preach that it is time to, now I know this sounds just so clever, turn or burn. In fact, you hear John say that the one coming from God has an axe in his hand and he's going to cut down trees that do not produce fruit. And John would preach that same message. A prophet like Elijah would come. In fact, we're going to go ahead and break this chronological study in the gospel. And I want to jump ahead to a passage in Matthew chapter 11. Because I want you to hear what Jesus would say about this one who comes like Elijah. Matthew 11 verse 7. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Why did you go into the desert or what did you go in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The question is raised about John. Now, you would think this morning, after having read these three passages, the the introduction of who John was, uh, Malachi's statement about John would come, and then Jesus' statement about how incredibly powerful the ministry of John was, that today's message would be about John. And if that's what you've concluded, you're wrong. This message isn't about John. It's not as much about the messenger as it is about the message, which is why Jesus would say that John is the least in the kingdom. Because it wasn't about John. It was about the message that he brought. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk you through this text with four, four basic steps. Let's look at the messenger first. And what the job of the messenger was. According to the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, that the messenger would come and he would make straight the roads. He would smooth out the roads for the Messiah to come. Now, because the culture over there, and especially the, the, the landmass, was so hilly and rocky that, you know, I, I bet you they had to wonder the first time they crossed into the promised land, if this was a land flowing with milk and honey, they didn't know what milk and honey was. Because when you go over there, it makes Missouri look plentiful with topsoil. It is just rocky and hilly, and it's just a strange environment. But when you're there, you realize that when a king would be proceeding, when Herod would move from town to town, there were those that went ahead of him that would clear the road of debris. They would clear the road of sticks and of people and of stones and of potholes. And they would smooth out the road so that the king's journey to the new town would be received well and would be comfortable for him. And so what John does is he comes and he paves the road for Jesus to arrive. Yet John is an interesting character. John lives a very base life. He doesn't have a home. He lives out in the wilderness. He eats insects and uh, honey that he finds naturally. He doesn't have uh, sets of clothes. He has a set of clothes. And he dresses exactly like 2 Kings described Elijah. A garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist is the description in the Bible of both men. 
A very simple lifestyle he chose. Because John knew the purpose of his life in human history was not to point people to himself. His purpose for being was to point people to the king and allow people to see the king for who he is. If you get nothing else and you disconnect from me and find me boring today again, then remember this. Your purpose in life is not to point people to you. It is to point people to the king so they understand who he is. John is great because John knew his role in life. Because when we point people to Jesus, it doesn't diminish us. It only highlights what we know about us. That the king is the one whose path should be paved, not our own. So we we learn about the messenger, but I also want us to clearly hear what his message was. His message was to repent. In fact, John's sermon could be summarized this way. If you were driving home from a Sunday morning with John the baptizer... And your kid said, Daddy, what was the sermon about? Or Mommy, what was the sermon about? You could simply respond to every sermon John ever preached. It was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent. It's an interesting word. It's a military word. You've heard this multiple times if you've been raised in the church. It's an about face. It's 180 degree turn. The definition of the Greek word repent means a change of one's mind and or course. I was recently reading, Dallas Willard says, change your thinking about your thoughts. That's what it means to repent. I I want you to ponder that with me. Change your thinking about your thoughts. Because if you change your mind and you change your attitudes, it is far easier to change your actions. Try to change your actions without changing your thoughts and it won't happen. It'll be temporary at best. And so, biblically, there are three stages of repentance. And I want you to see how they all are tied to our thoughts. First of all, there's admission of sin. The message of John, the message of Jesus, the message of the early disciples, the message of your New Testament, is that throughout Scripture, God is calling his people to realize, to take responsibility for, and to confess that they have rebelled against God, not accidentally, but intentionally. They have told the God who gave us this universe that it is better that we live life our way than that we live life his way. And so the first thing all of us must do is change our thinking about our thoughts. And that is admission of sin. But just admitting that you've sinned is not really as hard as we preachers make it out to be. Most of us will admit we've messed up. And then add to that, most of us will admit we chose intentionally and poorly. But just admitting our sin is not what repentance fully means. It also means to have sorrow over sin. Psalm 51.4, David, in his great psalm of repentance, says, Against you only, Lord, against you I have sinned. So it's not only admitting that I rebelled against God, but it's admitting I rebelled against God. I didn't just make a mistake. I didn't stub my toe in the dark. I pushed God out of the way to get what I wanted. I told him to get out of my face, get out of my life, get out of my business. So not only do I admit it, but I have a sorrow, a legitimate sorrow, not from getting caught, but a sorrow that realizes I threw away the most important thing for something that didn't matter at all. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Then, not only is there this godly sorrow after I admit, but then there's the turning from sin. It's not just simply saying, I did it. It's saying, I did it. I wish I never would have done it, and I never want to live that way again. I want to live differently. I want to be freed from the captivity I placed myself in. That's why John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Once again, Dallas Willard redefines it this way. He says that repent, for the kingdom of heaven is available to you right now. But see, in American church, and I've been at fault for this, and I repent of it. In American church, we seem to have made repentance about getting our sins cleared up so that we can go on with our lives. But I want you to understand, repentance means I get my sins taken care of so I can live a new life. I can live a kingdom life. I can place myself under the reign of Jesus and I can live in the power available to me, not one day when I die, but a power that's available to me right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not one day, but blessed are even those who are poor in spirit, for they shall receive God's kingdom when? Now. You weren't born again, so one day in the clouds you can realize how good God's been. We were born again so that immediately, this moment, we can obediently live out following Jesus and by following Jesus experience all the life we'll ever need. If Christianity isn't displaying the power of the kingdom now, we have bought a lie that it's going to happen one day when the trumpets blow. Because if you read Jesus and you read him well, he didn't live under the concept of one day. He said it's here. And those who enter into it, enter into it violently. So, when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about just not sinning anymore. We're talking about living our life for a new kingdom, a now kingdom. A kingdom where there's hope for the broken. There's hope for all men and women. There's hope for the broken and the put back together. There's hope for the special and the never been special. There's hope for those who always catch a break and hope for those who have never caught a break. There's hope for the loved and the lonely. Hope for the accomplished and the loser. Hope for the important and the forgotten. And with this, John said, understand that the kingdom of heaven is available now. So change your thoughts about your thinking and change your thinking about your thoughts and then change your life. Too many of us, I fear, including whole seasons of my life. I've just tried to stay out of trouble so when this whole thing ends, God will let me come be with him. And what I missed in that interpretation of scripture is what about today? What about living in the presence and the goodness and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ right now? It's the power of faith unto salvation. And so we have been offered not only the hope of being restored by our repentance, but also facing this concept of the judgment of Jesus. The church doesn't like to talk about the judgment of Jesus. It makes us all uncomfortable. We'd rather have a soft teddy bear Jesus that loves us and hugs us and tells us we're swell. But I'll tell you the truth is, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. 
and those that do not produce fruit, which is interesting because you and I don't choose to produce fruit. God produces fruit in us. We are open to the work of God producing this holiness in us. You see, the presence of Jesus doesn't introduce judgment like he came and he's mad that he doesn't get what he wants. The presence of Jesus brought the judgment of God on the world and the judgment is this. Sin has separated us and only Jesus Christ can reunite us. And so in that, we have this powerful message from the messenger. The messenger who was to pave the way for Jesus. His message is to repent. And his, interestingly, his method is cleansing. So how do I not only mentally repent, but how do I physically repent? How do I enter into this kingdom and seize it violently, shaking up all the powers and authorities of this world? Well, this won't surprise many of you. We talk about this a lot here. In fact, it's, it's overrated by some people and underrated by others. So let's put it in the perspective John had for it. The method of cleansing was baptism. Baptism was a common thing among the Jews. Donald, uh, or Dr. Excuse me, Arnold uh, Fruchtenbaum says that Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish by placing their faith in Yahweh would be dipped in bodies of water to be cleansed. It wouldn't just be the cleansing of their hands or the washing of their feet or the washing of their face, but they would give their whole body, that these Gentiles would enter in and be immersed into water and they would come out of this water to place their faith in, in Yahweh. But John used this in a very unique way. Some of you know the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, and if you don't know this story, I'd encourage you, write that down and read that this week. It'd be worth your time. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there was a man named Naaman who was a soldier, and he was a well-known soldier, and he had a lot of authority, and he came down with leprosy, and he wanted to be cleansed, so he went to Elisha. And Elisha said to him, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman was offended by that request, that he would have to enter into the filthy Jordan River when there were cleaner, more beautiful rivers where he came from. But he was told, if he asked you to do a great thing, wouldn't you do a great thing? Yes. Then why don't you do the simple thing he's asked you to do? And the Bible says when he went into the Jordan River, he went down one time, two, three, four, five, six, and he still had leprosy. But when he went down the seventh time, And he came out of the water, his leprosy was gone. You see, what had happened was Naaman had to come to this conclusion. He was as good as dead with the leprosy in his life. Without God doing a supernatural intervention, he was as good as dead. And when he understood he was as good as dead, dipping himself seven times in the Jordan River may not have made sense to him in the moment, but when he came out of the water obediently, what had happened? He was healed. So John, using this powerful imagery, invited people who knew that they had not made themselves ready for the king, they were not aware of the kingdom, and they didn't even want to be a part of it. In fact, they told God to get away. They were invited by John to come into the water, to be baptized in repentance, to be cleansed in the water, so that they could prepare their hearts to receive what God had in store for them. You see, baptism symbolizes renouncing your dependence on yourself. I'm as good as dead if God doesn't do a supernatural work. And John invited people to come. That's why Jesus would say, did you go out into the wilderness to see a show? Did you go out to see a well-dressed man and find kingly cloth? Because when they went out there, what they found was what looked like a crazy man. Long hair, one set of clothes, 
ate stuff he could find under rocks. They're like, you went out to see a Branson show? You didn't get a Branson show. Did you go out to see someone who was kind of wishy-washy and made people feel good like, a, like a, a branch blowing in the wind? No, what you found was a strong prophet of God who said, God has a way. Will you honor it? And so in this moment, when Naaman realized he was as good as dead, John cried out to the people, do you realize what your sin has done to your relationship with God? We are all as good as dead if God doesn't do something that intervenes. In fact, if you look with me now at Luke chapter 3, once again, you'll see that Luke adds to the story here some interesting things. When John was calling them to repent because they'd not made ready themselves for the king, they cried out, what should we do then? The crowd asked, verse 10. John answered, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Change your thoughts about your thinking. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Change your thoughts about your thinking. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Change your thoughts about the way you think. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Notice what John's requesting of them. Confess, contrition, be sorrowful, and conversion. Change your actions. But you change your actions from going through and realizing that the life I've chosen is not the life I desire. And that's the good news that John brought. John says in verse 11, back to Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John, or Matthew and Luke would both write this after the fact. So here's what I need to remind you. In their witness of Jesus... They were writing these stories after they'd seen the fulfillment of them. So they remember John saying these words about baptizing with water and with fire, with the spirit and with fire. And they would remember on the day of Pentecost when these things that appeared like tongues of fire hovered over the disciples as the Holy Spirit came upon them. And Matthew and Luke were foreshadowing that the day that the baptism of Jesus would come would bring the Holy Spirit in a far different way. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus is the only way to be right with God and to reunite with God. And so because of that, John said, there is no other methodology. The world wants to say there's 15 ways to get to God. The apostle John sent by God with the first message in over 400 years to all of God's people said this word. There aren't 15 ways. There's one way. His name's Jesus. Change your thoughts about the way you think. Because a testimony has been offered. And then the moment happened. We see the messenger paving the way for Jesus. We see the message to repent. We hear the method is to be cleansed from our sins by the command of God. And then there's the moment, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I want you to see the Trinity here. I want you to see how the Father, Son, and Spirit unite in these special moments. There's three different times in the Gospels that we're going to study where God speaks over Jesus. These are powerful moments. First of all, Jesus obeys. So why did Jesus get baptized? He clearly didn't get baptized because he was a sinner, right? You're with me on that one? Of all the things we may not agree on, we have to agree on this one. He wasn't baptized because he was a sinner because he had no sin. He wasn't as good as dead and needed divine intervention. And John says, no, no, why would I baptize you? You need to baptize me. John said, I'm the sinner. And Jesus responded to him, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And I respond to that with a very strong theological, huh? What in the world does he mean to fulfill all righteousness? Craig uh, Blomberg, in the New American Standard Commentary, put it this way. To fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. So Jesus came and he said, I need you to baptize me. And John said, no, no, you should baptize me. You don't need to be baptized. And Jesus said, I need to be baptized to be obedient to God and to fulfill all righteousness. God has sent me on a mission and my mission is to please the Lord. It's not to please man or to please myself. And John, being swayed by the positive nature of that, consented and he baptized Jesus. So why was Jesus baptized? He was identifying with sinners. Doesn't that sound like the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah? He would come. Isaiah 53 said 12, he would be numbered among the transgressors. Baptism is an identification. We identify with Jesus' life, his ministry, and his mission. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm not going to quote the verse, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives this little twist that he who had no sin took his place with those who had no righteousness. So those of us with no righteousness could take our place with his perfection. Did you catch that? He who had no sin took his place with those who had lots. So that those of us who had no righteousness could take their place with the one who had lots. And his immersion portrayed his future death and resurrection. And in that moment that he obeyed God, this wasn't just symbolic. In that moment he obeyed God, the spirit came and anointed him. The Spirit came down in the form, it ascends like a dove. Now, the Bible doesn't say it came down as a dove. But the imagery of a dove in the Old Testament is pretty powerful, if you know it. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit hovered over the earth. And the Hebrew word for hovered means fluttered. That the Spirit fluttered over the earth just like this bird appeared to flutter over Jesus. We also know that a dove symbolizes God's offering of peace in Genesis 8 at the end of the ark. That it was a dove that came back with the branch in its mouth. And this imagery of the spirit hovering over creation. That God is recreating what has been destroyed. He's making all things new again through Jesus. And then God speaks. The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, about the suffering servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. The obedience of the Son 
the message of the prophet came together, together that day in the waters in the Jordan. And Jesus was submerged underwater and he came out symbolizing his obedience to God and the cleansing that he would offer the entire world. And when he obeyed, the Holy Spirit came down in that moment and anointed that moment and God said for all the world to hear, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He would be chosen to be a king, but his throne would be a cross. He was chosen to be a king but he would die as a sin offering. By baptism, he identifies with sinners and pictures his death. By being anointed with the Spirit, he displays the power of his obedience. By his Father's word, he is to be the worthy sacrifice and the King of all kings. So all of this together, the messenger, the message, the method, and this wonderful moment that it all comes together, what does that do for you and I? What Jesus allows us to have from the Father is adoption into God's family. The thing we should all live for is to one day hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The same words that God spoke over Jesus that day when he said, this is my son and I am well pleased in who he is and what he's just done. If you're waiting, if you and I are waiting to get to heaven one day, so that all that Jesus promises us will be fulfilled, we have misunderstood the truth of the kingdom. That God is a covenant-fulfilling God and the covenants of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they're available to us today. So for some in the room today, I ask you, will you repent? Will you change your thoughts and the way of thinking about Jesus? And will you change your life to get in on what he's offering you right now? Not in the future, but right now. And for some of us, I pray for an awakening. That we would not wait to get to heaven to experience all that God has for us now. And even to those of us who say, but preacher, I'm saved. I say to you, repent. Change your thoughts about your thinking. There's more to this life than we even understand. And all of it's found in Jesus. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.